ラショーモン前龍之介芥川 Translated and read by Melina Blanc From the man known as the father of the Japanese short story comes a grotesque tale of moral ambiguity not for the faint of heart. It happened one evening. A solitary servant was waiting below La Chaumont Gate for a break in the rain. Beneath the broad gate, there was no one aside from this man, only on one of the large round pillars with the vermilion lacquer peeling in places, a single cricket was perched. Rashomon is on Suzaku Avenue, and as such, aside from this man, one would expect to see, in a woman's broad hat or a man's crumpled cap, another two or three people waiting for a break in the rain. But in fact, there was no one aside from this man. The reason for this being these two or three years past that Kyoto had been the scene of such calamities as earthquakes, whirlwinds, conflagrations, famine, one after the next, the avenues of the capital's decline were manifold. According to the old records, Buddhist statues and sacred objects had been smashed, their vermilion-lacquered gold and silver-leafed wood piled up at the roadsides and sold for kindling. With the capital in this state, a matter like Rashomon's repair was long since abandoned, and no one paid any heed. Taking advantage of its dereliction, foxes and raccoon dogs dwelt there, thieves dwelt there, and at length it even became custom that the bodies of those with none to claim them were brought to this gate and abandoned there. And so, once the sun had gone down, anyone would find the atmosphere sinister, and people came to avoid setting foot in the neighborhood of this gate. In their place, from place unknown, multitudes of crows came to gather. By day, those crows formed circles in uncountable numbers, wheeling and cawing around the high ornamental tiles, in the sky above the gate, especially as it grew red in the glow of sunset, they stood out clearly like scattered sesame seeds. The crows, of course, came to peck at the flesh of the bodies in the gate's upper story. But today, perhaps because the hour was late, not a bird could be seen. Only in places upon the crumbling stone steps from whose fissures long weeds grew up, crow droppings could be seen sticking in spots of white. The servant, having settled his faded dark blue kimono-clad bottom on the uppermost of the seven stone steps, was fussing at a large pimple on his right cheek while gazing vacantly into the falling rain. I wrote earlier, a servant was waiting for a break in the rain, but the servant, even had the rain stopped, had no particular aim. Under ordinary circumstances, of course, he should have been expected to return to his master's house, 
But the fact was he had been let go from that master some four or five days before. As I wrote earlier, at that time the city of Kyoto was in decline along many different avenues. That this servant now, after long years of employment, should be let go by his master was nothing more than a small ripple off this overall decline. So rather than saying, a servant was waiting for a break in the rain, it would be more appropriate to say, a servant, penned in by the rain, with no place to go, was at an utter loss. Furthermore, the cast of the day's weather had had no small effect on this Heian period servant's sentiments. The rain had begun falling from around five in the afternoon, and as yet showed no sign of letting up. At this point the servant had on his mind only how he should make his living tomorrow, as it were, how he should manage his hopeless situation. He traced incoherent thoughts, all the while listening without listening, to the sound of the rain falling on Suzaku Avenue. The rain engulfed Rashomon. From the distance, the sounds of its driving sheets collected into a roar. The gathering dusk pressed the sky down low. Looking up, the gate's roof on the ends of its diagonally projecting tiles seemed to be propping up the heavy, dark clouds. As far as doing something about his hopeless situation, the servant had no luxury to be particular about the means. If he were particular, it amounted to starving to death, whether beneath a mud wall or upon the dirt of a roadside. And then he would only end up being brought to this gate's upper story and thrown away like a dog. If he were not particular, the servant's thoughts, after many times over pacing the same road, finally faced this juncture. But this if, however long it stood, in the end was only if. For although the servant acknowledged he could not be particular about his means, and to settle this if should assert its natural conclusion, then there is no other way than to become a thief. He could not muster the courage. The servant gave a great sneeze and rose wearily. Kyoto, in the chill of evening, was already cold enough to want a brazier. The wind and the darkness with it blew in mercilessly between the gate's pillars. The cricket that had been perched on the vermilion-lacquered pillar had long since gone away. The servant, tucking his head into his chest, hunched the shoulders clad in the dark blue kimono atop his yellow undergarments, and looked around at the gate. If there were a place where it looked like he could comfortably sleep the night through, without heed to the wind and driving rain, without fear of being seen, there, at any rate, he thought he would spend the night. Thereupon, by luck, a vermilion-lacquered ladder, wide in breadth, caught his eye ascending to the gate's upper tower. If he went in for the upper story, even if there were people there, they would only be dead ones. 
So the servant, careful that the plain wooden-hilted sword suspended at his waist would not slip from its scabbard, set his straw-sandal-shod foot on the ladder's lowest rung. It was some minutes later. At the halfway point of the broad ladder leading into Rashomon's tower, the man, contracting his body like a cat, held his breath and stole a look over the state of affairs above. From the tower above, the light of a fire was shining, spilling weakly onto the man's right cheek. It was the cheek that had, amongst its stubble, the red, pus-filled pimple. The servant, at the start, had made light of the idea that anyone above would only be a body, but the fact was, looking from two or three rungs higher up the ladder, that someone had lit a fire up there, and furthermore, that that fire looked to be shifting back and forth. This was immediately evident, because the muddied yellow light was swaying on the ceiling, hung in every recess with spider webs. On this rainy night, atop this gate, anyone lighting a fire could, in any event, be no ordinary human being. The servant, padding along as softly as a gecko, at last crept as far as the steep ladder's topmost rung. There, making his body as flat as possible, extending his neck as far as possible, apprehensively, he made to peek inside the tower. Looking in, it was to find, just as rumored, that several corpses were carelessly deposited inside the tower, but because the firelight's sphere was more confined than expected, how many they numbered was not clear. Only, though it was dim, what was evident was that some of the corpses were naked and some kimono-clad. Unsurprisingly, among them were mixed both women and men. And the corpses, all, were so like sculpted dolls of clay as they lay strewn pell-mell across the floor, mouths open, arms outstretched, that it could even be doubted that they had, in fact, once been living human beings. And while the parts that jutted higher, shoulders, chests, received the dim firelight, the shadows on the parts that fell lower were cast all the darker, and all of them were as eternally silent as mutes. The servant reflexively covered his nose against the reek of the corpse's decomposition, but his hand had, in the next instant, already left off covering his nose, for a certain strong emotion had well-nigh entirely dispossessed the man of his sense of smell. For it was at that moment that, for the first time, the servant's eyes fell on the person squatting among the corpses, wearing a kimono the color of cypress bark, a short, emaciated, gray-haired, simian old woman. The old woman was holding in her right hand a lighted torch of pine wood and peering intently into the face of one of the corpses. Judging by the length of its hair, it was probably a woman's corpse. 
The servant, incited by six parts fear and four parts curiosity, for a short while forgot even to breathe. To borrow a phrase from the recorders of the Chronicles of Old, he felt the hairs on his head and body stand thick. Then the old woman, wedging the pine torch between the floorboards, took the head of the corpse she had been gazing at in both hands, and, just like a monkey picking its child's lice, began plucking that long hair one strand at a time. The hair seemed to be falling out in her hands. With each strand of hair that was plucked, the fear dissipated little by little from the servant's heart, and at the same time, a vehement loathing for the old woman roused little by little. No, to say for this old woman is probably misleading. It was rather that a revulsion towards all forms of evil was, by the minute, increasing in strength. At this moment, if someone had again raised to this servant the problem he had been thinking about a short while ago beneath the gate, to starve to death or to become a thief, it is probable the servant would, without a touch of regret, have chosen starving to death. It was to that extent that this man's spirit of hatred for evil was, like the old woman's pine torch wedged in the floor, starting to vigorously flare up. The servant, of course, did not know why the old woman was plucking the hair of the dead. So, in rational terms, he did not know whether to define it as good or evil. But for the servant, on this rainy night, atop this gate, the plucking of the hair of the dead was in itself alone already an unforgivable evil. Of course, the fact that the servant was, up until a short while ago, himself feeling out becoming a thief, was long since forgotten. Now the servant, tensing both legs, sprang abruptly up from the ladder and, setting his hand to the plain hilt of his sword, with long strides stepped up before the old woman. Her astonishment goes without saying. Taking one glance at the servant, she sprang up quite as though she had been shot from a sling. Wretch! Where do you think you're going? This the servant spat, blocking the old woman's way as she stumbled over corpses, making it a panic to escape. Undeterred, she made to shove the servant aside and go by. He still would not let her pass, and pushed back. For a short while, mutely, the two grappled among the corpses, but the contest was, from the start, decided. The servant at last seized hold of the old woman's arms and forcibly wrenched her to the ground. The arms were just like chicken legs, nothing but bones and skin. What were you doing? Speak! Hold your peace and it will be this for you! The servant pushed the old woman aside and abruptly swept his sword from its scabbard, thrusting the white steel up before her eyes. Yet the old woman was silent. Both hands quivered uncontrollably, her shoulders heaved with gasping breaths while her eyes opened to the extent that the eyeballs seemed to protrude from the lids, and like a mute, 
she was obstinately silent. Seeing this, the servant became for the first time explicitly aware of the fact that this old woman's life was entirely in his hands, and with this awareness, the until now vehemently burning spirit of loathing for evil was, before he knew it, cooled. What remained was only the feelings of tranquil pride and of satisfaction that come with a task smoothly brought to completion. So the servant, looking down at the old woman, softened his voice a little and said thus, I am no official of the office of the police or the like. I am but a traveler who a moment ago happened to pass by under this gate, so it will not come to my arresting you or what have you. But it would be best if you would only tell me what you were doing just now atop this gate. Thereupon the old woman, her widened eyes growing all the bigger, stared at the servant's face with fixed attention, with keen eyes, red-rimmed, like a bird of praise, she watched, and then her lips, for wrinkles nearly one with her nose, moved as though they were chewing something. At the gaunt throat, the movement of the sharply protruding Adam's apple could be seen. Then, from that throat, a voice like a crow's call came, gaspingly, transmitting to the servant's ears. Blocking this hair, you know. Blocking this hair, you know. Well, I thought I would make a wig. The unexpected banality of the old woman's answer disappointed the servant. And coincident with disappointment, the earlier loathing, along with a cold disdain, was again entering into his heart. That mood, then, must have been communicated to the other party, for the old woman, still holding in one hand the long strands torn from the head of the corpse, in a voice like the croaking of a toad, said haltingly, I see. Well, the plucking of the hair of the dead is a very wicked thing, perhaps. But these dead here, all of them, are just the sort that deserve no better than this. The woman I was just now plucking hair from, you know, she used to cut snake into pieces about five inches, dry it, and saying it was dried fish, go to sell it at the barracks of the palace guards. If she had not caught the plague and died, perhaps even now she would be going off to sell it. And what is more, that dried fish this woman was selling, I heard because the guards said the flavor was so good that they were, without fail, buying it as a side dish for myself. I do not think what this woman did was bad because, had she not done it, she would have starved to death. So it was an unavoidable thing. And so, here too, I also do not think what I was doing a wicked thing, because, just the same, if I did not do this, I would starve to death. So it is an unavoidable thing. Therefore, this woman, 
who knew well about these unavoidable things, is probably looking on with understanding at what I am doing, too. It was something to this effect that the old woman said. The servant, having restored his sword to its scabbard and clasped the sword's hilt in his left hand, had listened coolly to this story. Of course, his right hand was fussing with the large, red, pus-filled pimple on his cheek while he was listening. But for the duration he was listening to it, in his heart a kind of courage was coming to be born. It was that courage which, just a short while ago, beneath the gate, had been lacking in this man, and it moved him to act on a completely contrary course from that courage of likewise just a short while ago, while ascending atop this gate and apprehending this old woman. It was not just that the servant, on whether to starve to death or to become a thief, was no longer conflicted. In the man's turn of mind of that moment, a fate like starving to death had been expelled so far outside the realm of consciousness as to be well-nigh unthinkable. "'No doubt it is so,' the servant said with emphatic derision as the old woman's story came to an end, and, taking one step forward, abruptly parting his right hand from the pimple, he caught the old woman by the collar and, in a biting tone, said thus, and so, when I go to tear off your clothes, you mustn't hold it against me, it being that I, too, am in a state where, if I did not do this, I would starve to death. The servant swiftly stripped the old woman of her kimono, then, as she made to cling to his legs, roughly kicked her down on top of the corpses. To the latter's trap door was a mere five paces. The servant, hugging the stripped cypress bark-colored kimono under his arm, took off in the blink of an eye down the rungs of the steep ladder, away into the dark of the night. It was not long before the old woman, for some moments fallen as if dead, got to picking her naked frame up from among the corpses, raising a muttering, moaning voice, Again relying on the smoldering firelight, she went crawling up to the ladder's trap door, and with her short gray hair hanging back to front about her face, she peered through the opening at the lower reaches of the gate. Outside, there was nothing but the cavern-black night. Where the servant went, nobody knows. Do you like dark stories? Can I interest you in a vampire tale? Not a twilight, tween-lit, whatchamacallit vampire story, but an action story, a horror story, a maze of tricks and traps woven through New York City as a man and a monster try their very damnedest to take each other down. Meet me over at Starcross, Keen's turn. That's K-E-E-N apostrophe S-T-U-R-N for an adventure that'll give you a turn.
I hope to tell you tales again soon.